I'm Kara from Burlington, Vermont. I'm Andrew from Long Island. I'm Ben from Louisiana. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on this show is Patrick Warburton. He spent the better part of the last 20 years uh, spanning the worlds of film and television with a virtual lock on guileless, blithe meatheads, <laughs> ranging from uh, ranging from his uh, current role as one of the stars of Rules of Engagement, a long-running television sitcom, to his iconic, uh, the, the role that really made his career putty on uh, NBC's Seinfeld. Um, let's hear one of the classic putty moments from the show. Uh, he enters Elaine's apartment wearing a particularly brightly colored leather jacket. Hey, man. Hello? Hello? What is that? It's my new coat. You ditched the fur? Yeah, I saw Jerry wearing his. He looked like a bit of a dandy. Check it out. Hey, Paul. You got a question. You asked the eight ball. You're going to wear this all the time? All sides point to yes. Patrick Warburton, thank you so much for coming to The Sound of Young <laughs> thank, America. It's thanks great for to having me here, Jesse. Appreciate it, man. Um, I, was, I, I was looking at your bio, and I, I noticed that your mom was an actress. And I, I also noticed the year that you were born. And it seemed like your mom's credits ended a year or so before you were born. And I wondered whether she gave up acting to be your mom. She did. I would say, um, you know, my dad was a, my dad's a surgeon, orthopedic uh, surgeon. He wanted her out of the business. I think he knew what he was doing when he got her pregnant four years in a row. <laughs> so I, yeah, I have three younger sisters and uh, we're all very close. You grew up uh, mostly here in Southern California. Um, did you did you grow up in the kind of life that I am uh, imagining for a guy who had uh, uh, th- three younger sisters and a uh, mom who had been a was a retired beautiful actress and a dad who was an orthopedic surgeon? <laughs> it sounds so grand, doesn't it, Jesse? <laughs> it wasn't bad. We were in Huntington Beach, you know, and uh, I grew up about half a mile from the beach. Um, on the outside, it, it probably. It would have all looked great. You got to understand, when I was a freshman in high school, I weighed 95 pounds. I had Coke bottle glasses. I'm blind as that. <laughs> These glasses you see right here go on over my contact lenses. They don't, I don't they, think that's real, Patrick. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at you right now. You are you're about the same height as me, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, something three, yeah. like that. I'm, I'm guessing you go... Uh, maybe two ten. Um, you're like a, and, and it's an athletic two ten. I, I do not honestly believe you being a ninety pound weakling. I've got all of the documentation, my friend. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was getting bust an hour to go to an all boys Catholic college prep school where uh, where either you were an academic or a football player. 
and I was neither. You know, they could recruit football players, and uh, they, they touted themselves as being one of the top 10 academic schools in, in the country at the time. I was at a straight C average, and I just didn't fit in. And up until, you know, junior year in, in high school, when, you know, my folks let me out of that place, and uh, I ended up going to Newport Harbor High School, which was just an awesome transition. You know, I'm, you know, ditching class occasionally to go surfing with buddies. I got contact lenses. I started feeling like a human being, but I was still terminally shy. I couldn't talk to a, a girl. I couldn't talk to him. What kind of guy did you end up being by your senior year? Um, uh, directionless. I had, I remember the, uh, the speaker we had had graduated from Newport Harbor. He was, uh, the, uh, president ceo founder of hobie cat industries and he got up in front of everybody and all of our parents and said listen if you want to take a few years off and go to hawaii surf do whatever you want uh i highly recommend it that's what i did and you know i'm a multimillionaire. And of course there was a collective gasp among the parents out there <laughs> who hired this guy um so i went to junior college i rode crew I fell asleep in every class, and I got C's once again, and I, I couldn't make the uh, transfer to any worthwhile university. So, y you know, I guess I felt like after senior in college, I was going to go about it. I was going to go to college. I was going to try to be a marine scientist, which which was real pie in the sky. and never, never could have happened for somebody that just had the uh, like academic demeanor i guess marine scientist is sort of a it, that's a classic academic aspiration for a guy who actually just wants to go surfing oh yeah or swim with the fishes you know yeah. ultimately you'd probably end up uh, taking oil samples for an oil company uh, or ground samples for an oil company i don't know you're not gonna it's not going to be what you saw on television but um and I felt like I was a narcoleptic. I fell asleep in every class, but I, I think that's because I was so exhausted when I got to school every day from endorphins and, you know, rowing boats. I rowed crew in college and I hadn't discovered coffee yet. So I, I feel like if I discovered coffee, maybe I would have got an education. Did you aspire to acting or were you just so big and handsome that someone just wrote <laughs> you a check and asked you to be in a movie? No, really wasn't that way. <laughs> I, I loved uh, Jerry Lewis movies growing up. That's that inspired me. Also, I loved, you know, I enjoyed going in. Even though my mother didn't work professionally, when she started really having a family, she did do community theater to um, sort of sate her appetite there. And and uh, I would go hang out and watch her do, you know, uh, Brit British farces or whatnot, you know. And it was a fun place to be. I always thought, wow, what a great gig if you could actually do this. And I guess I sort of always felt like I had a perspective on everything I saw as opposed to just being able to um, uh, submit to, uh, you know, a, a you know, place whenever I'd watch a film or whatnot of uh, just um, suspending all, you know, uh, unreality and, and, and finding myself immersed in it fully. I think I always looked at, looked at things somewhat critically and saying, well, what would I do? Or to me, it always looked like a game, you know, being an actor, hmm. How, you know, how would you, ta you know, attack a role or do something uh, differently? It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on this show is actor Patrick Warburton. If his name doesn't sound familiar, his voice almost certainly does. He played putty on Seinfeld among many other television and film roles. I was watching clips from uh, your career on YouTube before you came over, and I came across a clip from uh, the first movie that you ever did, 
this movie with the just almost comically self-parodic title of Dragon Nard um, from, I think, 1987. Um and in this clip, well, first of all, tell me how you ended up getting because it seemed like uh, it seemed like you had a sizable role in the film, which also had some other very accomplished actors and actresses in it. Eartha Kitt was yeah. in it, for example. Uh, did not look like a good movie, I will say that. Oh, it's just atrocious. <laughs> but how did you how did you end up in in this role? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I look at it and I, I I'm I'm trying to think back if I even like auditioned for this or if I just went <laughs> and took a meeting. I'm like, how could I have read auditioned and gotten this job? Now, obviously, that wasn't uh, a priority of theirs. That these were sort of you know mandingo exploitation you know canon pieces of garbage movies. You play I, a white slave in yeah, the film. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of like from having seen only clips in it, it, it is a movie that looks like someone wrote a story based on looking at the covers of romance novels and then decided to shoot a feature film with several famous yeah. people in it, uh, on VHS. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's about it. It is, uh, they're unwatchable. They're just about the worst movies ever made. And then I had to come to the sort of the acceptance that, uh, you know what, they, they really are bad. And, um, and you like to talk about how bad they are, but you really need to own the fact that as bad as they are, you are the worst thing. In <laughs> you know, and it's, you, you, you have you just to realize you're no Eartha kid. <laughs> you got to own, own stuff. Well, you know, Oliver Reed, even though he was drunk every day, um, was still the only watchable thing in these movies. I want to play a little bit of this scene uh, from the film. I'm only going to play a little bit of this scene, which sincerely goes on for five minutes. Uh, this is this is you being flogged before a crowd in the movie Dragonard. One. In this scene, so I'm watching this scene on YouTube, and I happen to look down at the comments. It turns out this scene, very popular in what you might call the flogging enthusiast community. <laughs> That's what we call it for public radio purposes. Wow. A lot of disappointment that you were wearing wow. your shirt. Uh, some, some quibbled with the sound effects in that scene. They felt that it would have been better to go with the classic whip crack sound effect, I believe, was the specific complaint about that scene <laughs> but you in that scene you they flog you it's a hundred floggings and they flog you a hundred times on camera there's no jump cuts there's no start with three and then go to 77 they like then, count everyone yeah every they show every single one of the floggings oh god it's just it's just tragically awful you know it's so bad it's 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 just an exercise in um, masochism to yourself, I guess, to, 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 make, to su subject yourself to that, to watch it. It's just pure crap. <laughs> you were in, um, uh, like, almost every popular television program between 1987 and 1993 once. Uh, Northern Exposure and Mad About You, and just a bunch of different television shows. You were a classic kind of working television actor, appearing on just a bajillion TV shows. Don't forget Baby Talk with Scott Baio. I, <laughs> I was Man in Bookstore on one of those. I shan't. I shan't. 
Um, and Seinfeld was the role that really made you a star. Um, and it, it was a role that made you a star in one or two guest appearances. Like you did one episode in season seven or something like that and, and came back a couple episodes later and then were gone for a while. But that was so central. You're, you created such a stir with those two ridiculous it was, bits. It was fun to, you know, to get that opportunity. I got to go in and I, it was really, two weeks before I was sitting on the couch with my wife watching it. It was our, our favorite show. We watched every Thursday night and I just... I said, I remember saying, why can't I get on a show like Seinfeld? I would just die to be able to do an episode of the show. And then two weeks later, I got to go in and read for Jerry and Larry David. And it was for Jerry's Mechanic. It was for one episode and really just a means to an end. It was just a guy who who was Jerry's Mechanic, who Jerry shared some information with him about you know a sex movie use. And then all of a sudden, he, now he uses it with Elaine, who they both dated, and it, it backfires. So... There really wasn't anything specific uh, about the, you know, uh, the character. I thought when I saw the other guys in the room, they all seemed like Tonys and Vinnies and whatnot. And I thought, well, that's not me. I, I got to try a different angle with this guy. So when Jerry would accuse him of saying things like, you know, you don't even use the swirl or the twist of swirl, and and you know, and uh, David would say, well, yeah, that's right. You know, I just thought, <laughs> well, what if it, instead he was like, yeah, that's right. You know, like he's just like really weird and. Weird and sort of de- detached in a way, and so so it was fun. It was fun to look at Jerry and Larry laughing. I, I couldn't help but think this was going well. And then I did it. And then a couple weeks later, we did. They asked me to come back to do the face painter episode where we go to a hockey game, and I'm an, I'm just an idiot uh, face painter, like I'm insane. And that was fun. Now the next two years, now I couldn't come back on the show because I had already signed on as a cast regular on a show called Dave's World, very, a very likable television program starring Harry Anderson, based yeah. on the comedy columns of Mr. Dave Barry, as I recall. Yes, absolutely. Although it was rated 70th, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and Seinfeld was rated first. And when they were inquiring about available. And for two years, I couldn't do it because I was on Dave's World and they wouldn't let me out, out of that in any way. I had to wait till Dave's World got canceled. And then Jerry said, hey, you want to come back on the show? This is during the ninth season. And that's when I did um, the, the last up, my last seven episodes. I only did nine regular season episodes on Seinfeld. Uh, ten if you include the final episode. But, but uh, that was it. I hadn't really watched uh, Seinfeld since it was on in first run. Mm-hmm. I did. I mean, when it was on in first run, I watched it every Thursday night like every other right-thinking American. Yeah. But um, I, I, I recently, maybe a year ago, watched all of them. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I watched them one at a time until I had watched all of them. And there is, it, it really is two different shows. In the early days, it is a... It is a tiny show uh, that all, is always turning in on itself, and it's always about something. Com- it's very true to the idea of a show about nothing. Right. Um, and, and by the end of the show, it's and I love. There are those who don't love the end, the the later episodes of Seinfeld, but I definitely do. Um, it's like a song, like it's like a, it's just a crazy rhythm that they put things into. Yeah. And you are and you are you are a striking counterpoint to that rhythm. You know, the, your manner of speech is so specific on the show. It and everyone else is in the uh 
rhythm. Um, and you just stop every one of those things cold every time. And I wonder whether it was you sitting in that audition that made you think like it would be, it would be just something different if I just was that, or if you had already discovered that you could just clip your speech a little bit and look intensely, just be serious, raise the stakes a little bit, clip your speech a little bit, and it would have that effect. Um, I'm not sure if, um... If I was that conscious of it, I've, I've always thought that in the realm of anything, wherever you find yourself as an actor, you know, I mean, being adaptable isn't, shouldn't really be like your primary focus, you know, because, because socially we all need to be adaptable, obviously, and, and proper and courteous and all of these things. But in the, you know, if you're going to create a character and you're not going to judge a character and he say he's going to, you know, he's going to be bombastic or clueless or this or that, perhaps he's not quite as in tune and, and otherwise in ways with everybody else's, um, uh, you know, uh, sensibilities. I don't know. Everybody else's, uh, you know, uh, way realm. When we come back in just a second, Patrick Warburton will finally address the issue on the tip of everyone's tongues, how he became king of the winos. That's when we come back on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Hi, I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Griffin McElroy. We're three brothers. It's not a coincidence. We have a show. It's called My Brother, My Brother. Me. It's an advice show for the modern era. Uh, sometimes we also take questions from the Yahoo Answer Service. Hey guys, how many push-ups does it take to look like a werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fine question, Griffin. We'll answer that one and so much more, including questions from readers about love and navigating the waters of society. Subscribe on iTunes or get it online at MaximumFun.org. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by the menswear blog, Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. Gift memberships available. Shipments begin December 1st with delivery before Christmas. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at Ask.Metafilter.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Patrick Warburton. Right after Seinfeld, um, you had what... God, it's hard for me to pick my favorite uh, Patrick Warburton roles, but uh, one of my all-time favorites, certainly, which was as... um, the evil Johnny Johnson on the sitcom News Radio, a counterpart to uh, Jimmy James, um, the the boss boss on that show, um, who in a three episode arc um, in the final season of that show stole Jimmy James's corporate empire and uh, Dave Foley's character's girlfriend. Um, but then was destroyed by Jimmy James, and uh, we later find out transformed into a, a bum, or as he prefers to be called, a wino, um, living on the streets. And I want to play. I want to play this scene from the show. This is you've you've been discovered living in the subway with a sort of um, shifty gang of winos, 
and uh, you've returned to uh, Dave Foley's character's office. So you're in there dressed in full wino regalia, and uh, Stephen Root, uh, Jimmy James, the boss of, of bosses, uh, comes in and finds you there. Did I hear right? Is there a certain arch nemesis of mine that's always right here? Johnny! Son, you smell. See, uh, Johnny lives on the street now, sir. Well, of course he lives on the street. Hmm? You're, not, you're not surprised? Nah, that's what happens when you empty a man's bank account, ruin his credit rating, blackball him so he can't ever get a job. I call it my deluxe severance package. And, uh, Johnny, you're not at all bitter about this? No, I should he be. It's just business. Don't you ever tangle with this guy, Dave. He will mess you up for good. <laughs> yeah. So, what the hell are you doing right now? I'm a wino. Oh. Well, how's, uh, how's that treating you? Funny you should ask. Last week, I got elected king of the winos. Oh, how'd you hear that, Dave? King of the damn winos. Boy, oh, boy. Can't keep a good man down, can you? This is a... It's really one of my favorite things that's ever been on a television program, I have to tell you. Um, and uh, But I imagine that it was also difficult because this was the final season of news radio, yeah. um, which I, I think was a, a, a really wonderful season, as was the rest of the program, but very difficult because Phil Hartman had been killed right. in between that season and the previous one. Yeah. Um, so I can, I can imagine that it must have been, uh, I've talked to Dave Foley about mm-hmm. this, just a difficult place to be. Um, all these brilliant people who were so close together, but also missing their friend. Well, and, and he'd been taken with, with such tragic consequences in such a tragic way. And it just, uh, it, it, there was a, a strange energy there, certainly. And then, and then, you know. Add the Andy Dick factor. You've got... <laughs> it's just... And it's, Andy Dick was pretty well along by that point. He had been successful <laughs> and, and making good money for a long time and thus free to indulge in being Andy Dick. Yes. Um, it was bizarre. Now, John Lovitz was there. He came on. He was a, a, good, a good friend of Phil's. And he came on. I thought well, it would be interesting and weird. But, you know, John's there. I'll, I'll, I'll jump on board and we'll... You know, we'll try to um, you know have some fun here, and uh, but it's 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 tough to be on a set like that one when, when uh, it's all still so fresh, you know. And uh, you know, and it wasn't like you know a comrade had just died. I mean, she he was taken out in you know the horror stories of Hollywood, and it's uh, so so everybody's kind of slugging it out that season yet the writing the story it was fun i look at that stuff and it really was it really was fun it's I mean, just you couldn't you couldn't find someone who loves the work of phil hartman more than me but um i have to say that those that your arcs and several other episodes from that last season are among my favorites on one of my favorite shows oh Wow. Well, thank you jesse that's my I, praise my friend what's interesting what i like about that character is they took what I think has been the central quality of so many of your characters, which is that no matter how how sort of uncomprehending or dopey or jerky you are, 
that you are somehow able to bring the audience along with you, <laughs> um, which is a very special gift, you know, to, to have an audience like you when you're doing something horrible is a great gift for comedy. And they really, they went all out and made that essentially the premise for that bit. The, the premise of those arcs is Dave Foley's character gets that you're a horrible person. In fact, that you're literally evil. Yeah. And no one else does. <laughs> like everyone else is just too busy liking you. It was, uh, it was so much fun. Um, sometimes just a perfectly writ character comes along, you know, and you're like, this, this is great. I love it. You did a movie. Yeah. You did a movie right around then that um, uh, that I really liked. I think it was probably your your first starring role in a movie called The Woman Chaser. Yeah, um, which is I, I think it's still not out on DVD. But um, I checked on Amazon. You yeah. can get it for three dollars on VHS. I, I do recommend it. They there's um there's a gentleman up in the the Bay Area who runs uh, the oldest art house in San Francisco, and they. Uh, it's been around for about a hundred years, and uh, he was the curious. Roxy? It's, uh, I believe, it is the Roxy. Yeah, yes. I, 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 I only know it because I grew up like two blocks away. Yeah, <laughs> and he was curious why it wasn't on DVD. He had gone to um, the uh, the you know the the DVD rental joint, the Artsy One, and he inquired about it. And the guy said that's the number one requested DVD that we don't have and cannot get because it's not out there. The uh, rights haven't been acquired to all the music, which is, I think, a, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars. Now, I, I don't, you know, when you're talking about a little, you know, niche flick like this, a little, you know, cult movie that's obviously not going to, you know, get a ton of buys. It's, you know, mostly those in the art community or want to check it out. It's, it's always a gamble to, you know, acquire, procure those rights and then, um, and then put it out there. But they, I know they want to do it. I mean, he screen he ended up screening the woman chaser this last year uh for an entire week and to uh some some nice sold out houses and everybody seemed to really really dig it. So, I'd love to see it, you know, on DVD. Someday. It's it's sort of a uh it's sort of a classic hard-boiled LA story. Um you play a a sort of aspiring movie maker um in the vein of like a Mickey Spillane character or something like that. And I think that the one of the really remarkable things about the movie is that it never it, it never breaks that tone. It never breaks that classic hard boiled tone. But and you never break tone. You are as sincere as you could possibly be throughout the film, including during your ballet dancing scene, um, your extended ballet dancing scene. Um, it, but there is, you have a quality about you that makes it funny. <laughs> and I wonder if you've ever been frustrated by that quality, like wanted to go and do something really serious and you thought you were making cho dramatic choices and you found that people were laughing at you. Um, that's probably where Dragon Art changed, changed my life, Jesse. <laughs> Um, there are, uh, there have been, there have been times, uh, where I, I know I, I actually, I, I enjoy it just because I know that's one of the, that is one of the things that I got in my corner is that, uh, there's something just absurd about me and I don't know what the hell it is. I don't even know what it is, but, uh, it's, it's great that I could, 
you know, be at that place where I, I'm seemingly taking myself seriously, but nobody else is. So it's, it's, uh, and it's fun. You know, I, I mean, I did do, I did a film called the civilization Maxwell bright where I did, I did commit in there. I think, uh, it was it was pretty honest, you know. It's a gritty little film. Unfortunately, it was shot on PAL, so and I, and and that was one of my concerns at the time. I don't know why, because <laughs> that, that, that doesn't. I think even high def was was an option to us, but we we still shot on PAL. And um, it's not a perfect film, but I felt like there were great performances, and 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 uh, and I was proud of that. That was a departure for me, as was I would say, you know, the dish, which was uh, an Australian film I did time but those are the few times when i've gone in that direction where i don't think i've been <laughs> where people are laughing because because i'm just uh i'm just stupid <laughs> your character is stupid because your character yeah. is stupid patrick yeah. it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest on this show is actor patrick warburton if his name doesn't sound familiar his voice almost certainly does he played Putty on Seinfeld, among many other television and film roles. Um, you've been married for a, a long time, and you have four kids, and you're on a, a very kind of um, classic family-slash-relationship sitcom on Rules of Engagement. Um, yeah. And you're contrasted with your, your, uh, your co-star, David Spade. I actually want to play... Um, this is uh, you explaining and then demonstrating uh, what you consider to be a relationship-saving strategy uh, that you have used on your wife called the bank. See, whenever Art screws up, instead of getting mad and shoving it in her face, I just deposit it into this handy file, the bank. <laughs> the bank? That's right. Then when I screw up, I withdraw one of her old screw-ups to... Neutralize her anger. It seems kind of petty and manipulative. Thanks. Great. You didn't mail that check, and now there are no more spots left in the class. But you never forget to mail a check to the Beer of the Month Club, do you? First of all, I have that on auto pay. And... You know, I said I was sorry, and people forget things. I mean, just by way of random example, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, you forgot to return that Mamma Mia DVD, and... By the time we found it in the couch cushions, we owned it. For 80 bucks. Well, that was... Similar incident? Sure. But I only bring it up to show that people aren't perfect. Well, that's true. I don't think I even got mad at you. No, you, you're actually pretty understanding. So, I guess this is like a teachable moment. <laughs> Um, I, I was at the uh, the Chateau Marmont once, yeah. not trying to brag or anything. I have it's a swanky quite joint, the, quite the Hollywood lifestyle. Yes. I've been there two times in my life, um, but uh, David Spade was there. This was just, I'm going to say, two years ago, a year or two ago, um, and uh, you know, I I like David Spade as much as the next guy. He's sitting there at dinner. Um, uh, with four women. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say that they were definitely all models, but probably all models. Yeah. Um, 
just I just found myself like it's not that he's not a good looking man, but he's not a uh, he's he's not George Clooney. Uh, he's his central quality is not his good lookingness. Not that he's not a successful man. He is a successful man, but again, he's not a film star or you know what I mean. He's on a he's on a well liked successful sitcom, and he's well liked in the world of comedy. I think it, you know his his power his power with women or is, is his humor and his charm you know and he is um, he's one of the funny you know, most spontaneously funny people that I've ever known he's just uh, his his mind is always working that way and uh, and uh, yeah and he's you know he's he's a charming guy you know you see him with all these beautiful girls and. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty uh, you know it could be a little astonishing I guess at times you know, but I, <laughs> I I find myself less astonished I get it I see how he, you know you know how he uh, how he uh, is as successful as he is. You're on this show where you play uh, you play a classic married guy on television. He plays a classic Lothario-ish guy on television. You are a married guy and have been for many years, 20 plus years, I guess, at this point. Um, uh, he is he lives that lifestyle. Yeah. Apparently, I've yeah. seen it with my own eyes. Um, I wonder if you've ever like looked at him and thought, wow, what would it be like for me to be? 45 years old and living that life rather than well i have jesse i have i've actually i've said it out loud in print before (laughs) you know it's gone to print and my wife's read it and uh and uh you know and i've had hell to pay you know really for just you know every now and then maybe i said sure for one month it'd be nice to have david's lifestyle Uh, you know and uh that makes me a bad guy uh Jeez, I think any red-blooded American male would love to be in David's shoes for a little while. But maybe, um, but maybe for a little while. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I've been with my wife since we were seventeen, yeah. so you know, I sort of, uh, I, I'm sort of probably deeper into that than you are. I'm. I have two though, Jesse. Where's our get out of jail free card? Don't we get one? <laughs> what? Let's go to Cabo and just see what kind of trouble we could get in down there for a week. But you you seem like I mean you strike me as the kind of dude who is you have four kids yeah you know you're as you mentioned your folks had four kids where having that kind of life is sort of what you want. Well, I have the four best kids in the world, and and I have the best wife in the world. You know, she's four of the top five. I do have one kid. I have four, like I said, of the top five, and. we are, we have a good life and and uh you know so you you know you go one direction or another and and that is the way that uh that I went and I look and I I know that uh there's much fulfillment there you know I my kids you know as a parent it, ultimately that becomes the only thing that's really of a concern for you is um the safety and well-being of your children of your family and nothing else matters you know, that's probably why we have three SUVs, you know, in uh, our uh, driveway. You know, I, I feel guilty in one sense, but I, I've always had my wife driving the kids around in a big SUV because that makes them all safe. I, always, I wondered about the spikes on it. I thought that was a little <laughs> bit much to put spikes on it. <laughs> it's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Patrick Warburton. 
So, Patrick, you've um, you've done the voice for uh, a lot of animated characters on shows like Archer, which is one of my absolute favorites, and the and the Venture Brothers. But uh, your first time doing this was for a Disney movie called The Emperor's New Groove. Uh, let's take a listen to a clip from the movie. Here you are as Kronk, who is people will be shocked to learn uh, dumb but lovable, helping Isma attempt to poison the Emperor at dinner. Is everything ready for tonight? Oh, yeah, I thought we'd start off with soup and a light salad and then see how we feel after that. Not the dinner. You know. Oh, right. The poison. The poison for Cusco. The poison chosen specially to kill Cusco. Cusco's poison. That poison? Yes, that poison. Gotcha covered. Excellent. If you drops in his drink, then I'll propose a toast and he will be dead before dessert. Which is a real shame because it's going to be delicious. Boom, bam, baby. Let's get to the grub. I am one hungry king in the world. Crunk, get the emperor a drink. Drink. Right. I didn't know what a cronk was. That's a character that I did. <laughs> You know, because Disney is very secretive. I had three pages of a script. There was a Kronk and an Yzma. And I thought, well, this Kronk could be a, a robot or a monster, a troll. I don't know what the hell a Kronk is. But, you know, I think a Kronk probably could sound like that. And I just <laughs> I just decided to do, yeah, talk like that. And then I went in and I liked it. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm working on a Disney movie. To me, for me, it was just an amazing opportunity. Like, I grew up in Huntington Beach. I went to... Disneyland, my whole life growing up, and uh, and uh, I'm a I'm a real Disney, uh, you know, I was real Disney. I'm kind of a Disney junkie. I love Disneyland. I've always thought that I was much more than a theme, a park, or a studio. It's you know, and and that even though Walt's been long gone, that his you know, and it's a huge corporation now, but still, the the heart and soul of Walt Disney, I believe, lives there. It's to me, it's a very spiritual place. And anytime I get a chance to work with Disney, um. You know, it thrills me. So even even you know, even being the poor man's Buzz Lightyear, that was one of the first opportunities I got. Tim Allen's not gonna do the T V show, right? So I'm like, I'll be your poor man's buzz. Knowing very well how I felt growing up. Like when they do the T V series, you know, every kid's like, that's ah, not the real guy. That sucks. <laughs> You're actually even at Disneyland. Well, at Disneyland California Adventure, and as I just found out at, at Disney World as well, you play there's a ride where you fly over at least in Disneyland California Adventure, you fly over like the wine country and, and the Golden Gate Bridge and stuff. Um, you have this flying experience and you are the host of it. You, you're like the guy that you yeah. watch while people are standing in line. Yeah. Um, was that a job that you ended up doing because you had that affinity for that place? Um, I would... Uh, I would hope to think that it somehow kind of gravitates towards you when... You know, you love it. It loves you. Maybe it's just nice to get those opportunities. I just got a call. I said, "Hey, would you be interested in uh, being, being part of a Disney ride?" I, I, uh, I just thought that was uh, amazing. So, um, and then, and just recently, I got asked to do the voice of uh, the droid on the Star Tours ride. I was about I because as you were saying this, 
I was thinking like that my entire childhood ambition was to one day replace Paul Rubens, who did the original uh, droid on the Star Tours right. ride, which was my favorite ride at Disneyland. Like that, that seemed like the greatest job in the world to me. And I now I found out it's been offered to you. Well, no, no, that is I'm a droid where when you're in line, right. you're waiting in line. I'm the security droid. So like a woman will walk by with a guy and I'll be like, I'm sorry, no Wookiees allowed. Oh, <laughs> that was your husband. My apologies. Um, you know, ridiculous yeah, you, stuff like that. But they, a few robot zingers. But they, yes. And then, but then they robotize the voice. So it's hard to tell. But that was, um, that was really fun. Yeah, I get to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea that I, I like the idea that you uh, tell your agent like, look, I've got this hit sitcom. I'm pretty busy. I've got a lot of important voiceover roles in critically lauded uh, television programs. But if if any Disney-related theme parks call asking asking for someone to perform a minor role as a wisecracking robot, put them put them through. Absolutely, put them through. Yeah, that's the pinnacle right there. Well, uh, Patrick Warburton, thank you so much for joining us on The Sound of Young America. It was really fun to have you on the show. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me here. Patrick Warburton is one of the stars of uh, the sitcom Rules of Engagement. He also plays uh, a talk show host. If talk show hosts were horrible, horrible people in the uh, Cracked series, effing with tonight. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Our intern is Colin Walzak. That's Colin with two L's for those of you keeping score at home. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always send me an email. My email address is jesse at MaximumFun.org. And always remember, all good radio hosts have a signature sign-off.